Hi everyone, Tommy here, to let you know that the St. Dimpna's Playbook book is now available from Ave Maria Press. You can order wherever books and ebooks are sold. We'll put a link to the book on Ave's website in the show notes so you can go and check it out and use the code BEWELL, all one word, to get 25% off. Thanks so much! Blessed James Alberione once said, When you are sad, open the scriptures, and you will find the passage that will console you. Welcome to the 105th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, and a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. I love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want us all to remember that God wants us to reach out for help through therapy or medication when needed, but he also wants us to continue to reach out to him whenever we can. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. We've talked quite a bit on this podcast about creating a crisis plan when you're feeling well, so we don't have to try to come up with plans or coping skills when we're in the midst of a crisis. But what exactly is a crisis plan and how do you make one? The crisis plan that I think makes the most sense and is the most helpful for those of us who find ourselves in a mental health crisis from time to time is called the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, or RAP, W-A-R-P right? And I'll allow their website to help get us started. Wellness Recovery Action Plan, or RAP, is a simple and powerful process for creating the life and wellness you want. With RAP, you can discover simple, safe, and effective tools to create and maintain wellness, develop a daily plan to stay on track with your life and wellness goals, identify what throws you off track and develop a plan to keep moving forward, and gain support and stay in control even in a crisis. The RAP process supports you to identify the tools that keep you well and create action plans to put them into practice in your everyday life. All along the way, RAP helps you incorporate key recovery concepts and wellness tools into your plans and your life. Back to me, it's important that we don't only come up with a plan for crisis, but for our entire movement toward wellness from mental illness. And we'll go back to the RAP website for a different, uh, the different parts of the wellness recovery action plan so we can better understand how to actually start making one on our own. The Wellness Toolbox is a list of skills and strategies for keeping ourselves well and for feeling better even if we don't feel well. Wellness tools are simple, safe, accessible, and often free things that we can do to recover or maintain our wellness. They give us hope and help us feel connected to others and to ourselves. So part one is a daily plan. The daily plan is a simple structure for putting wellness tools into action for daily living. This includes a description of how we look and feel when we're well, things we need to do every day to stay well, and things we may want to do on a particular day to maintain wellness and make our life how we want it to be. 
Part two is stressors. These are events, circumstances, or situations that may lead to uncomfortable feelings or behaviors. Some people prefer the word triggers or red flags, whatever you call these occurrences. When they happen, they cause a normal reaction to the event in our lives. But if we don't respond to them and deal with them, they can make us feel worse and disrupt our wellness. In this part of RAP, we identify our stressors and the wellness tools we will use to respond if they occur. Part three is early warning signs. These are subtle signs of change that indicate we may need to take some action to keep our situation from worsening. Whereas stressors are things that happen around us, early warning signs are things we notice about ourselves and our environment that tell us we need to be proactive to protect and restore wellness. In this section, we identify our early warning signs and the wellness tools we can use to respond if we notice them. Part four is signs that things are breaking down or getting much worse. When things are breaking down, we're feeling worse and worse despite our best efforts. This is the time to take immediate action to prevent a crisis. In this section, we make a list of our signs that things are breaking down and the specific concrete plan we will follow to use our wellness tools to help prevent a crisis. Number five is the crisis plan. If a crisis happens, it's not your fault. The crisis plan helps you stay in control even when things feel out of control by making advanced plans for yourself and for your supporters for what you need during this time. In this section, we define what a crisis looks like, for our personal situation, who supports us, what supports we want and do not want, and how we want to be supported by others, including medical professionals, if appropriate. And last, part six is a post-crisis plan. The post-crisis plan helps us navigate the period after a crisis so we can return to our daily plan on the timetable and in the way that makes sense for us. It also helps us evaluate our wrap to identify new tools or strategies we want to use based on what we learned about ourselves through the crisis we experienced. So back to me. It's totally worth checking out the wellnessrecoveryactionplan.com for more information on how to go about making your plan. And I really hope this helps to kind of give a framework for what we're talking about. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm going to introduce you to St. Margaret of Scotland. Born in 1045 in Hungary, Margaret was the daughter of the English prince Edward the Exile and his wife Agatha, and also the granddaughter of Edmund Ironside, the King of England. We'll get a bit of help from Wikipedia as we explore her life. Margaret came to England with the rest of her family when her father was recalled in 1057 as the possible successor to her great uncle, the childless King Edward the Confessor. Whether from natural or sinister causes, her father died immediately after landing. After a series of difficult situations, including violence against her family, Margaret fled with her family for the European continent, but their ship blew off course and they landed in Scotland where they were given refuge by the Scottish king. In 1070, Margaret married that king and the couple had six sons and two daughters. Margaret was a very pious Christian and among many charitable works that she did, she established a ferry across the Firth of Forth in Scotland. (laughs) Amazing names over there, for pilgrims traveling to St. Andrews in Fife. She led many church reforms in Scotland to help bring it more in line with Rome and was well known for her generosity. Margaret ended up being the mother of three kings of Scotland, or four if Edmund of Scotland is counted, and a queen consort of England. She died in 1093 and was canonized in 1250. And we like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Lord, you gave St. Margaret of Scotland a special love for the poor. Let her example in prayers help us to become a living sign of your goodness. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. 
And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Anonymous gets us started. I know all states differ, but what are signs that a therapist is unethical? Some of the things my therapist did were hugging me at the end of each session, asking me about other people that he knew that I knew were also patients of his, using the F word regularly, telling me I won't make fun friends unless I start drinking again, asking me how many partners I had in the past I could go on and on. I'm now working with someone else doing EMDR, and I'm sure that will be a target at some point, but just curious about your thoughts about the difference between bad therapy and unethical therapy. Let's start by joining in prayer together for Anonymous and everyone who comes under the care of an unethical or just plain bad therapist, that they may be kept safe and get connected to someone who helps them in the way they deserve. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let me first apologize on behalf of my profession. The things you mentioned aren't just signs of a bad therapist, but a completely unacceptable one. Let's go one by one. Hugging is not always a red flag or always a problem, but therapists are taught pretty clearly to avoid touching people in the con- in, in the context of providing therapy unless there's a clear clinical reason, right? So simply hugging at the end of every session seems bizarre, but perhaps when there's a particularly emotionally driven session and you know someone and you say, hey, I'd like to give you a hug, you know, that might be normal, but hugging at the end of every session is a little bit weird. Asking about the people you knew who are also people seeing him is a clear violation of HIPAA rules, right, and guidelines, and would typically come with a penalty against this clinician. So that's that's not good at all. Using the F word is something that would need a little more context. Therapists are taught to mirror the language of the people that they're helping at times, to help with joining and helping the person seeking treatment to feel understood and accepted. So I might use the same language a person I'm helping is using um, in that context, even though I would never use it with another patient, right? So just flippantly using the F word with no clear clinical reason does seem weird, but there are times where if I'm meeting with somebody who speaks in that manner or refers to certain things, I might use the same specific language that they use so that I can kind of connect with them suggesting that you won't make fun friends unless you start drinking is pretty reprehensible I'll be honest a therapist should be supportive you know of the recovery that people are going through and suggesting that they need to start drinking for any reason really uh, seems to be antithetical to wellness and recovery the last one you mentioned asking about how many partners you had seems pretty weird to me as well I'm not sure what the clinical need for that information might have been I seriously tried to think of a clinical reason to ask that question and I simply can't perhaps in a primary care setting or like a sexual health clinic, that might be an intake question. But in the context of therapy, it seems really out of place. So let me assure you that you had at the very least a bad therapist and perhaps more accurately an unethical one, especially when it comes to that clear HIPAA violation. Um, Therapists know better to even come close to something like that, right? So let me also assure you, though, that it isn't your fault that you got connected to this person or even that you continue to see them despite these behaviors because there's so much stigma around mental health treatment. We just don't hear people talking about therapy that often. And as a consequence of that, we can't be sure what good or bad therapy looks like. We don't really know 
how to be on the lookout for something that might make us need want to suggest a change of provider, right? And in reality, even something as minor as a personality difference or just not feeling comfortable with a therapist is enough to change, you know, let alone any inappropriate or illegal stuff. But most of us don't know that. So don't beat yourself up over it. I wish you all the best with this new therapist and hope that this person helps lead you to wellness and recovery in a way that keeps you safe. A different anonymous is up next. How should a good Catholic handle a sexless marriage? I struggle with the habitual sin of lust. In a recent confession, a priest asked me if I had a good relationship with my wife and suggested that regular marital congress might help reduce my constant urges. Complicating matters is the fact that we don't sleep in the same room. She keeps the bedroom too warm for me to sleep, and her snoring has gone from bad to intolerable. Unsurprisingly, this has negatively affected my depression and my anxiety. I've thought about going to therapy, but my wife is super skeptical of mental health professionals. Without her on board, I don't know how helpful therapy would be for me. Let's start by praying for Anonymous, for Anonymous' spouse, and for everyone experiencing difficulty in marriage, for the grace of God to pour into their hearts, and for these couples to remember when they first met, and the strong love that grew between them, and to work that love into practical things so that nothing can divide them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. First of all, uh, I would like to say what a blessing it is that you're connected to the sacrament of confession. It's great to hear that you've been going to confession and that you're interested in working through these issues with your spouse, even though your spouse might not be interested in any kind of treatment. So I would recommend get connected to a therapist, even if your wife is skeptical. It would still be beneficial for you to be able to talk about these issues with someone who can maintain an objective perspective. They can help you uh, work through, you know, if what you think is actually an issue, help you to work on ways that you can improve communication with your spouse so that you can both be on the same page, right? It's a little bit difficult to do that over a podcast, but I do have a few thoughts. First, a priest suggesting that you need to come together with your wife more frequently as a way of addressing your sin of lust seems way off to me. Our spouse and our physical intimacy with them, they're not meant for our use, right? Not meant to be a tool. And most certainly, no one is responsible for our sins but us. The priest seems to be thinking along the same lines of people who cheat on their spouse and then blame the cheating on the fact that their spouse wasn't pleasing them enough in the bedroom. It's it's kind of rubbish, really. As, as we're all in control of our own behaviors, right? We're all in control of our own actions. And something a person does or doesn't do with us isn't a reason for us to sin. I'm kind of saddened that the priest made that suggestion. The fact that you're both unable to sleep in the same room does seem to suggest a problem that therapy will hopefully address. There seems like there must be a lot of room for communication to help find some middle ground and to help both bring you guys closer together, right? I can understand where you're coming from with how difficult this situation might must definitely be. And, and I don't want to make light of that difficulty at all. But I will say, since you mentioned this, how should a good Catholic handle this? The answer is to help move ourselves to a more correct understanding of marriage and move forward with that correct understanding in our mind, right? We, we all need to do this, all of us married people. There are plenty of church documents to help with this, but St. Paul seems to sum it up best. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her, 
to sanctify her. Christ's relationship to the church is a model for how husbands are supposed to be in relationship with their wives. And it's a relationship of sacrifice, of giving ourselves completely without reservation, without condition. It's hard. It's impossible without God, right? But that has to be what we strive for, even if we know we're going to fall short. Please know that we'll be praying for you. Ian wraps us up. Someone that I love recently attempted to take her own life. She has suffered since she was a teenager from major depression and made another attempt years ago. She is, thank God, alive. And I believe that she's truly committed to recovering. And she knows that if that's what she decides to do, she can count on my help and love as she does it. But I'm aware of how hard it is uh, to love and support someone in this situation because I know I cannot, quote, get her better, as seductive as that illusion is. Do you have any recommendations for support groups or other ways that someone in my position can take care of themselves and make sure that they are offering their love and support in a healthy way that their loved one would want them uh, to if they were at their best? Okay, let's start by praying for Ian's loved one, for Ian, for everyone contemplating suicide and all those who care about them. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. I have to start by saying, what a beautiful witness you are for all of us, Ian wanting to know how best to help your loved one while also knowing that you have to do it in a way that maintains your own mental and emotional well-being if only more of us could understand this balance. I'm going to get started here with a little bit from NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. If your friend is experiencing suicidal ideation, that means they're hurting immensely and they likely want to talk about it and feel heard. You can show your support by listening and giving them your empathy and compassion. It's important to give lots of empathy to help them feel comfortable sharing and hold back from trying to fix what they're going through or giving them any advice. First, just really listen and show your concern by your body language and compassionate statements. A few examples of compassionate statements here. I'm so sorry that you're going through this. So it's important to validate what your friend is feeling and experiencing. In addition, this statement shows that you care for and empathize with them. Next, can I bring you dinner? Would you like it if I come over? Instead of asking if there's anything you can do, think of a couple specific things you could do to help support your friend. Next, you mean so much to me. I can't imagine life without you. Take a moment to let your friend know just how much you love and care for them. You might even remind them of a funny or heartwarming memory, but be sure to do it in a calm, non-aggressive way. And last, I know that you're in pain. Again, validate how your friend is feeling and reiterate to them that, they're, that, that you're going to help however you can. A few examples of non-compassionate statements that you should avoid saying, and I mean, probably many of us have said these, but it's, it's best to avoid these ones. So let's go over them. Your life isn't that bad. It might not seem like your friend has a reason to feel so unhappy, but their pain is something no one else can understand. Know that if they are having thoughts of suicide, they are in more pain than you realize. And avoid this statement as well as other similar phrases as they only pass judgment. Next, you don't want to say, you don't really want to die. 
You may say this out of fear, but stop yourself if you can. If your friend is talking about suicide or showing signs of suicidal behavior, it is to be taken seriously. Do what you can to make them feel comfortable opening up instead and ask if they'll let you allow to help them get professional help. Next, don't say you have too much to live for. Everything will blow over. This statement undermines their feelings. If your friend is suffering with suicidal thoughts or feelings, they don't feel like they have a lot to live for, even if you know they do. Last, don't say, everybody's got their problems. When someone is suicidal, they feel that they have no other option, and telling them this is incredibly invalidating to their pain. So back to me, I think these are incredibly helpful ideas for active listening and responding in a way that helps validate their experience and lets them know that you're comfortable sitting with them in this dark place. Being comfortable asking questions is the next big piece of it. Here are a few questions you could ask. Do you think about hurting yourself? Do you think about dying? Do you think your friends and family would be better off without you? And if they answer yes to any of these questions, then follow up with these questions. Do you have a plan? And do you have a means to carry out that plan? So back to me, these kind of questions help your loved one um, know that you're hearing them and it helps you decide if there's something that you need to do to help keep them safe immediately, okay? One last piece from from Nami here. If you're having this conversation with a friend, it is time to reach out to somebody. However, depending on whether your friend is actively suicidal, like seriously considering suicide, has a plan and a means to carry out that plan, or experiencing suicidal ideation without any intention or acting on it, which uh, we call passively suicidal, you need to make sure that they're getting the appropriate level of care. It's a common myth that those who are suicidal don't seek help, but in fact, many people reach out in some way, and often that's to a friend or family member before it's a mental health professional. So remember that people who are suicidal are in pain, and they just want that pain to go away. I realize, you know, that it can be uncomfortable or scary to have these kind of conversations with loved ones who are contemplating suicide, but learning these tips can really uh, help make us feel more comfortable and help your loved one feel accepted and heard. And NAMI isn't just good for giving tips like this, but they also have groups to help support family members and friends who care about those suffering from mental health symptoms. And I would absolutely suggest looking up your local NAMI to get connected and learn how to take care of yourself while helping take care of your loved one. Please, please know that we'll be praying for you both. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be so happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.